are entering the Freedom Hut. President Trump brings back three Americans from North Korea in advance of a summit that could change the Korean Peninsula and with it alter the trajectory of geopolitics around the world. Plus, the Iran deal aftermath. Israel has gone after Iran in Syria. What does that mean? What will it look like going forward? A woman decides to strip down in front of her class to protest the patriarchy. We'll talk about how that worked and also a consent expert who says you need consent from a baby to change a diaper? That and more coming up. This This is the Buck Sexton Show. Where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. It is more likely than not that there is a conflict, possibly a full-blown war, with an emerging nuclear power. We're actually closer, in my view, to a nuclear war uh, with North Korea and in that region than we've ever been. That we're probably closer to uh, an outright war with North Korea than we have been in a very, very long time. About a 30% chance of war, I'd say, from where I sit right now. Probably not that far off. could easily construe what he's been saying as a declaration or at least a threat of war. What is the ignition point for Kim Jong-un's fuse with this provocative rhetoric? This escalatory rhetoric between the leaders of two countries that have nuclear weapons uh, is slipping very quickly into something that could become very dangerous for the planet. I don't see the opportunities to solve this diplomatically. You have reason to be scared of a war that could wipe out 500,000 people. No, I just think he wants to use nukes. That's what I think he feels. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. There we go. I just think he wants to use nukes. Good call, Mika. Want to remind him of that now that he's brought three Americans home and is scheduled to have the first sit down between a president and the North Korean leader in history? Good call. Isn't it quite a week for the Trump administration? We had some fun there with that montage. Those were some of the revered senior figures of Democrat media and Democrat politics. And oh, they were just so sure that Trump is going to push us toward war with North Korea. Instead, they're having to think of ways to convince the American people that all the stuff that Trump is doing, all the results that he's getting are somehow a bad thing. We now have the summit set for Singapore. Talk a bit more about that in just a moment. What that the backdrop that that is and why that's why that is meaningful in and of itself. Uh, We'll get into also the Iran deal and. Many, many other things, my friends. But I, I just have to note that at, at some point, the rational response to so many, not just missed, but grotesquely wild of the mark, insanely off base predictions from the uh, Democrat media establishment. At some point, you, you hear so much of it, you got to say to yourself, I shouldn't listen to these people on anything. They really don't know anything. They they have no ability whatsoever to bring together knowledge and experience to produce insight. They just produce nincompoopery on a massive scale. Uh, their, their predictions are cockamamie. 
They are not sensible when it comes to this president. I'm not saying on everything. You know, I'm sure some of those folks are great at telling you about, you know, I don't know, other other things. Can't think of who it was specific enough. enough. I think Dan Rather was one of them. He was always down here talking like this. Somehow people still listen to him, even though his journalism career ended at one of the biggest repudiations of integrity that I've ever seen. Uh, Trump brought back that. And I know people, look, I, I gave you, I think, I try to give you a, uh, a full and uh, multifaceted perspective. Now it sounds like I'm the two bobs and I'm selling you on why I do TPS reports. A multifaceted perspective. But really, I try to tell you what's going on from the other side, too, in some way. So at least we're not caught off guard by it. And they will tell you, oh, Obama got, I think it was 11 prisoners released over his eight years. And it's like, yeah, but... No one was saying Obama was about to start a nuclear war with North Korea either, right? Plus, that was over eight years. It's been a year. So if you go by, oh, I guess 18 months or so. But you know, if, if you're going to go by uh, by the numbers here, you could expect a couple dozen hostages to get for not hopefully, heaven forbid, no one else is taking a hostage. But you know what I mean? This is three in the early stages of year two of the first term. I think it's pretty good. But nonetheless... Kim Jong-un could very well have held on to those hostages to give him a little extra leverage going into the negotiations, right? Why let go of them now? In fact, wouldn't it be smarter? If you were Kim, wouldn't you want to sit down with Trump and say, you know what, just as a good faith measure, you do X, Y, and Z with the sanctions right now, and we'll give you back these three guys. No, he gave back three before even sitting down for the meeting. So it's a good faith measure. It doesn't mean the North Koreans are acting in good faith, though. This whole thing could blow up. Maybe that's a poor choice of words, but you know what I'm saying. This whole thing could go south. I have no illusions about that. But I, I start the show in the way I, I did today. I started the show in the way I did because I, I wanted to really establish what the baseline has been with this presidency and where we are now. And the truth is they've been telling us that Trump is just a, a crazy rogue elephant. There's no method to the madness. He's an ignoramus. All he does is eat cheeseburgers and watch TV in his pajamas. And he's going to start a, a nuclear holocaust that kills millions of people. That is what the people who are paid the most money from the biggest outlets in news have been have been peddling for going on two years now. And that's why I wanted to start that with that montage for you to start getting into a an understanding of how wrong they are and how if we're going to judge where Trump is right now, where the foreign policy of this administration is vis-a-vis all the biggest challenges that they've tackled so far. Oh, by the way, you know, they got like five of the biggest ISIS leaders too. just captured him. So Trump somehow is getting back hostages and capturing ISIS guys without delivering pallets of cash, without bowing a lot, without apologizing for America all over the world. It's pretty remarkable when you think about it that way, right? He's not using some of the old tricks from the previous administration. He's doing it his own way, and it's working, and that has the Democrats terrified. See, as I was saying yesterday, they can't run on the economy. Can't. I mean, it's a joke. They're, they're going to try. It's not going to work. They can, they can say whatever they want. It's not going to work, I, I think. And I mean, they're going to... 
They're going to lie about it. They're going to do everything they can to misrepresent the economy, but I just think that they're doomed to failure on that. I think I, I think that they uh, were acting under the assumption until pretty recently that national security and foreign policy would be a, a weak spot for Trump, right? That, that he wouldn't have enough accomplishments to counteract the narrative that they were going to craft of what a, what a buffoon he is, what a fool he is, all that stuff, right? They, that they never anticipated, obviously, right, given what they were, were saying in the past, that this president would get to the place that he has gotten already on Iran, on North Korea, on a bunch of these problems. Uh, dealing with the Islamic State, he doesn't really talk about that anymore. Yeah, people say, oh, but Obama did all these things with ISIS. Obama waited, he delayed, he was always he was always behind. Whatever was going on in Syria and Iraq with ISIS, the Obama administration was about six months behind where it should have been based on what was happening on the ground, sometimes more like a year behind. They eventually got, once they tried all the failed stalling and, oh, let's go to the U.N., maybe they'll do something. A year later, they started to do the right thing and not even in a full measure manner. Trump came in. He's just like, all right, we've got the best military in the world. Got the best generals, colonels, non-commissioned officers up and down the chain. Everybody. We got the best. Let's let them do it. Go take out ISIS. Do what you got to do. And guess what? The pace... And the, tar- the pace of the airstrikes increased dramatically. The uh, speed with which our special forces on the ground with Kurdish militia were able to move against the enemy increased dramatically. And who knows how many lives were actually saved in that process. Because remember, it's not like inaction has no costs. And that's one of the great lessons of the Obama era. You see, a, a classic Obamaism was sit around, make sure you sound smart, Make sure all of the other smart people are going to say that you're smart and then just try to have your media buddies ignore the fact that not only was there terrible stuff going on in Iraq and, and, and Syria because of the Islamic State and because of the Syrian civil war with Assad, but they were building jihadist terror factories that were exporting terror to Europe and through the cyber jihad, radicalizing people on, in our country that were killing people. So th- this was not a problem that we could have ignored. We should not have ignored it as long as the Obama administration did. But they thought inaction, they always conflated inaction with wisdom, right? delay with patience. These are not the same things. Trump shows up and says, all right, let's see, let's see who's on our side. Let's see who's not. And what, what are the problems we have to deal with? You know? Why should we? Why should the leader of the United States? I mean, given that we keep in mind, the media is always saying Trump's not uh, tough enough on Putin because they have this Russia obsession. Uh, they want to. They want him to, you know, call him out, call him a thug. The media is always calling Putin a thug, but we have to show some weird deference and respect to Kim Jong Un. No, show him respect now because he's going to sit down and maybe we can get somewhere. But before that, he just wants to fire off missiles. He wants to be a little punk. The president of the United States said. All right, I'm going to treat him like a little punk. And you know what? Here we are. Was there any point in the eight years of the Obama presidency? And I, I'm, it's not just that I'm trying to beat up on Obama and the, and the clown car of foreign policy advisors he had, but I'm, I guess I'm doing that too. Uh, but also because I want to juxtapose what's going on now versus what happened before. This is new. This is different. The Trump approach is disruptive. 
Was there any point during the eight years of the Obama administration that anybody with a straight face was even talking about denuclearizing North Korea? I, I don't even remember it as a discussion. It was just, you know, box them in, isolate them, sanctions, box them in, isolate them, sanctions. But not even enough in terms of the sanctions, because you see, here's a critical component of it. Obama didn't want to have to deal with China in a way that was going to require any real statescraft. The, uh, statecraft. the whole pivot to Asia was a fiction, right? It was just a, it was something that they talked about but never really did. With Trump and with the sanctions we have in place now against North Korea, if, if a Chinese-flagged vessel or even a, a Chinese-operated vessel under a flag of one of these uh, flags of convenience for maritime nations, something I could talk about with you guys another time, but there's a reason why there are so many ships that are registered to these like tiny principalities, right? So many ships registered to the Bahamas. Um, but we, we, we go after them, and we sanction whomever is trying to evade the sanctions that we have in place. So this is action. This is what happens when you actually tackle a problem instead of holding committees, holding meetings, getting the two bobs together, talking about the TPS reports, talking about how we're going to have another meeting and another meeting. And, you know, process cannot be the product for the commander in chief of the United States. Right. We got to leave that to the rest of the slothful bureaucracy. But there have to be things that are done that are in the best interest of the American people. And I think that Trump sees that he's been doing it. It is it is a, a uh, an old maxim of foreign policy. That you should know who your friends are, know who your enemies are, and do they know the difference because of how you treat them? Guess what? I can't say that that's the Trump doctrine because it's been around for a long time, but it's certainly a doctrine that Trump has adopted in large part as his own. And seeing the world with clarity and acting on that clarity can actually bring about results. Are we going to do denuclearize North Korea? I don't know. Probably less than 50-50. Just going to be honest with you. But it's not zero. And it was zero for the previous eight years while North Korea was firing off missiles and imprisoning millions of people in labor camps and engaged in weaponizing hunger and starvation and all kinds of horrible atrocities. Okay? There was a zero chance under Obama. There is a real chance under Trump. And that's because of what this administration has done, the actions they've taken. We have so much more show. Stay with me. I really think he wants to do something. I think he did this because I really think he wants to do something and bring that country into the real world. I really believe that, John, and I think I think that we're going to have a success. I think this will be a very big success. I think our Secretary of State, despite the fact that the New York Times said he was missing, he was in North Korea, but I think our Secretary of State has done a fantastic job. Uh, Mike, did you know that you were missing? They couldn't find you. They couldn't find him. They, they couldn't find him because he was in North Korea. That's right. That, that New York Times piece, I told you about it. They were they were angry or, you know, oh, how could the Secretary of State not be around? Well, maybe he's helping get uh, some Americans freed. You know, just, just maybe there's some good things going on here. Herb in New Jersey's got some thoughts on the situation. What's up, Herb? Uh, good evening, Buck. Um, you know, I, I was very glad to watch uh, this morning as the president and the first lady greeted uh, 
our fellow Americans being returned home uh, and very pleased with the work that uh, he and uh, Secretary of State Pompeo did to achieve that. Um, and like the president, I'm hopeful that maybe uh, Kim has decided that, you know, it's better to go along with the program and do some better things for his countrymen uh, than has been done in the past, because obviously that hasn't worked out real well. And what uh, what we're proposing for him and his people would be a whole lot better than, than what they've had. But in that regard, um, there's also the possibility of the Trojan horse, uh, and you being a student of history um, are very well acquainted with the possibility that um, this uh, this gift uh, could be, in fact, a uh, prelude to something that um, uh, is reminiscent to me of the uh, uh, thing that happened to, was it Kim's brother or uncle? And what Southeast Asian country did that occur in? Malaysia. Where, Malaysia. Malaysia. Uh, kind of close to Singapore uh, in general. Um, uh, you know, uh, I, I have to believe and I have to hope fervently that both the Secret Service and the company you used to work for um, ha have given some thought to making sure that nothing uh, of the sort could possibly happen uh, to uh, our president uh, while he's in a foreign country. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not worried about that. I mean, look, Singapore is kind of a benevolent police state, so I don't. I don't think we have any. Plus, we got U.S. Secret Service and everyone else. Uh, I'm, I'm not worried about that. But Herb, I, I can appreciate that you you are concerned that there might be a there might be a bait and switch. There might be a Trojan horse. There's any number of uh, construct. And thanks for calling in, Herb. Uh, number of constructs here that could be in play where this North Korea thing is not really working out the way that uh, we we are hoping it will. And like I said, I think it's less than fifty fifty. So you're not. I'm not the uh, you know the rosy lenses express over here or something. I just think that you've gone from a zero percent chance of averting a major conflict on the Korean Peninsula to like probably a 25 or 30 percent chance in the first 18 months of an administration. It's pretty amazing. Uh, by the way, White House is going to have a, one of its uh, senior strategists uh, for international affairs and agreements calling in a little bit to give us the White House perspective on this one. So uh, stay tuned for that and a whole lot more in the Freedom Hunt. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Welcome back, everybody. I've been telling you what I think about the big moves on Iran and North Korea this week from the administration. Now we have someone from the White House to weigh in. Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for International Negotiations, uh, Victoria Coates, is with us now. Victoria, thank you for making the time. Thanks for having me on, Buck. So what do you uh, want the want the folks to take away from what's happened this week? What should uh, what should we think about the trajectory going forward? Let's start first with what this means for uh, Iran, because I know a lot of people on the other side of the aisle are up in arms about this. Well, they are. And I think one of the things that's upsetting them is what you see manifest this week is American leadership uh, being exercised in a resolute, clear way in the interests of the American people. And that is making people absolutely crazy because this president is willing to do things that they've told us for many years 
can't be done. He will say things that they, they've said, oh, if you even mention that word, the sky will fall. Uh, and what has he gotten out of it? We've gotten out of the Iran deal, which is disastrous. Uh, it was just a weight on our national security. We now have the opportunity to reapply pressure to Iran. We can use the model that we've been using on North Korea with some incremental success and really try to turn that situation around. What can we expect from some of the... Uh, now, I know that it's often left out of the uh, mainstream media narrative that there are some allies, notably uh, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, that are uh, Israel, that are quite happy with what's gone on here vis-a-vis the Iran deal. But you see a lot of the critics saying, well, what does this mean for our European partners that were part of the P5 plus one? Uh, how do you think that's going to play out? What's the White House plan to work with them? Well, we already are, already are coordinating quite closely with them, and I just remind everybody that not three weeks ago, we had a seamless military action against Syria, closely coordinated with Great Britain and France, where all three nations participated from ships, from submarines, uh, from planes. We hit all of our targets, 105 uh, tomahawks deployed, and that was a tremendous moment of unity. And that doesn't just go away. These are, these are relationships and alliances of, of decades, if not centuries, duration. And that doesn't go away because we're not in one individual agreement. So we'll continue to work with them. The French in particular have been forward-leaning in their public statements about their willingness to, uh, to look at an additional deal. And we're very encouraged by that. What would a, an acceptable renegotiated Iran deal look like for President Trump and this administration? What are some of the key points that would have to be added in? Well, he really laid that out clearly in January when he set the May 14th deadline um, that he need, what, what he would understand to be in the national security interests of the American people would be a deal that really did end Iran's path to a nuclear weapon, which we, thanked, thanks to the Israelis, now definitively know this deal did not. Uh, we would have a deal that addresses their pouring of resources into ballistic missile programs, their sponsorship of terror. I mean, they're basically, as Ambassador Bolton said in the Washington Post today, building this arc of death and destruction from Yemen to Syria. It's terrible. Everything they touch is a disaster. Um, and we have to address all of this, putting one little stovepipe in place that might delay their path to a nuclear weapon for a couple of years is, is a Band-Aid on a, on a terrible wound. We're speaking to Victoria Coates, who is the Senior Director for International Negotiations at the White House. Uh, Victoria, moving on to uh, North Korea for a moment, mm-hmm. uh, there are clearly positive signs of whether people want to give this president to this administration credit or not. It's impossible to look at the return of three American hostages as anything but a good thing and perhaps a sign of good faith in addition to that. Uh, we know when the summit is going to be between Kim Jong-un and President Trump. We know where it's going to be. What are the uh, what are some of the expectations that we should have going into this? I mean, I know the administration's been saying they have very clear eyes. They're not promising the moon quite yet. Absolutely. And I mean, last night was a wonderful night. Uh, I think you saw the best of President Trump, a huge success for him. Um, how much he cares about these individuals. And, and this, is, this has been a top priority for our administration from the beginning. And we're going to continue to focus on all the other Americans unjustly de- detained from uh, Iran to Turkey to Venezuela. There are others, of course, out there. We're not forgetting anybody uh, in, in the course of this. But last night was a, was a great victory for bringing our folks home. And I just point out, it happened before the meeting. 
rather than having the release of the hostages be some kind of afterthought, it was very clear from the beginning that not much was going to happen until this took place. And so the president just wants to make very clear that, that he means what he says. And when he says he wants a verifiable, irreversible removal of North Korea's n- nuclear weapons, that, that's his goal. And that's what Secretary Pompeo expressed in his trips, you know, that, that that's what we're negotiating towards. And the North Koreans still want to participate. So we're encouraged. Uh, we don't have any illusions, but, you know, we're, we're going to take each incremental success as it comes and, and hopefully build towards success. How bullish are you that China, I know that Xi Jinping had his second meeting with Kim Jong-un, kind of a surprise meeting when it was first reported, mm-hmm. at least to the rest of the world. Uh, how bullish are you that China is going to be uh, a, a completely constructive, or let's just say it, a predominantly constructive partner in these talks with North Korea, where they're clearly China, China China's clearly going to be playing a role in the background? Oh, they, they have to. I mean, we're, you, you can't really separate North Korea and China out. And, you know, China has their interests. We have ours. Um, we are interested in cooperation where we can have it. Obviously, they, you know, they're quite aggressive in the South China Sea. They're doing things on trade that the president seems not terribly enthusiastic about. Um, and we're, we're working on those issues. But we're hopeful that this is an, a place where our interests in getting this situation resolved, uh, is that our, our interests are mutual here. And so we've been encouraged so far, as I'm sure you know, the president and President Xi have a strong working relationship, which has come in very handy. And uh, so we, we are hopeful China will play. Uh, they will see it in their interests to play a constructive role. Victoria Coates from the White House. Victoria, thank you so much for calling in. We appreciate it. Anytime, Buck. Take care. All right, team, we've got a whole lot more coming up in Hour 2. If you want to call in and chat, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Later on in the show, I'm going to talk to you about a story that you're going to have to hear to believe. Is it, in fact, a reasonable position to take that one should strip down to one's underwear in order to protest the patriarchy. This is a real thing. It really happened. The world's gone mad. I will tell you about that and more coming up. You are now entering the Freedom Hut Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. So Iranian forward deployed forces in Syria fire off some rockets at Israel. 20 of them, as uh, reported by the Israeli Defense Forces. Israelis knock most of them out of the sky. And no casualties suffered by the Israelis from that barrage. But perhaps there's something for America to learn in this. Because the Israelis didn't just leave it at that, and they didn't respond uh, in in similar fashion. They responded with an even bigger punch than the one thrown by the Iranian forces stationed in Syria. Dozens of airstrikes over the course of last night targeting all Iranian military infrastructure in Syria, turning much, if not most of it, to ashes. Just lighting it up. The Israelis will absolutely not tolerate Iranian forces 
using Syria as cover for uh, assaults of any kind. And I think that this is going to affect the way that the IRGC conducts itself a bit going forward. Iran's not going to learn its lesson in that they're going to back off. They'll try to find other ways to hit at Israel. But I doubt they're going to fire off rockets like that again anytime soon. Not worth it to them in terms of the cost extracted. I do wonder, and I give uh, give credit today to uh, David French, who's a, a sometime guest and friend of the show, uh, for his piece on why is it that America seems to have a very strange, almost tolerance of Iranian aggression. You go back in history, and the things that Iran has done and been a part of against the United States have been uh, barbaric in many cases. And you don't have to go back far at all. In fact, just a, a handful of years and many of you listening know exactly what I'm talking about because you were over there and you served. And so you know what I'm going to say. The Iranians were actively sowing chaos and, and murder and, and bloodshed as far as uh, and as often as they could in Iraq. Uh, you had Iranian proxies who were sending EFPs, explosively formed, or, or these are Iranians, I shouldn't even say proxies, uh, sending explosively formed penetrators into Iraq specifically for the purpose of puncturing these. You always could remember them when you'd see the aftermath uh, photos and footage, these cylindrical holes in the holes of armored vehicles. Why would you be doing that in the midst of a civil war? A civil war? Oh, that's right. Because they were trying to kill and maim American soldiers. And we never really hit back at them for this. And it's something that, you know, I, I think it's just because the Bush administration was so harried with trying to deal with the domestic political upheaval over over Iraq, as well as a very complicated situation in the Middle East. But remember, there were some people who were saying that we should have also taken action against Syria, not to invade, but just punitive action for allowing all the suicide bombers to just the the so-called rat lines of suicide bombers from Damascus all the way to the Iraq-Syria border. Didn't really take much action there either. But with Iran, we seem to always want to back off, don't want to upset the apple cart even more, don't want to do anything that would uh, further upset them. And when you look at it, when you look at this country, th- there is no more anti-American regime on the planet. In, in a lot of ways, Iran's regime exists to threaten Israel's uh, threaten Israel's existence and to proclaim its hatred for America. Beyond that, it's not really that clear to me what they want to export. Remember, the Iranian revolution is not just for their own country. It's not supposed to stay within their borders. The uh, the mullahs, the theocracy in Iran explicitly wants to export the Iranian revolution to as many countries as it can. It's it's Islamic fundamentalist revolution. Uh, And that's why it uses proxies that are generally Shia across the Mideast, but it'll also work with the Alawite Assad regime. It will work with Hamas, which is a Sunni terrorist organization operating predominantly out of uh, Gaza and trying to destroy Israel. It's time that we start letting the Iranians know there will be very severe consequences when they decide to step out of line. I mean, you all remember, remember the Obama administration when the Iranians seized a bunch of American uh, soldiers? You remember this? What did we do in response again? Uh, the Iranians live by a very straightforward 
set of rules when it comes to how far they will push and what they're willing to do. And it's when we sense weakness, we go on the attack. When we sense the attack, we go on defense. All right, they hunker down. They step back a little bit. There's no shared principle we have the Iranian regime. They don't care about life outside of their borders. They don't care all that much about life inside their borders in a lot of cases. And so we can't find common ground with them based on culture or ethics or anything like that. So remember, we're talking about the bosses, not the Iranian people. An important distinction. Those who are running that country, though, are part of a totalitarian theocracy. Uh, that brutalizes its own citizens and that engages in the widespread systematic murder of its political opponents abroad. Any Anyone for any government, any country, any regime the Iranians don't like, they are willing to remove uh, with force, with violence. So the, uh, the, the break away from the Iran deal, I think, is going to finally put us in a position to change not just the structure of the deal, which we were just discussing with our, our friend Victoria Coates, who's a, uh, you know, from the White House on the international negotiation side as a special assistant to the president, but, but also to change our approach to Iran in a much more wholesale fashion. No, no longer turning the other cheek to their attacks, no longer turning a blind eye to the mischief that they sow and, and the destruction that they are responsible for. I think that could really show also some of our allies, the Mideast, that we are we are more serious about tackling this problem this time, uh, this time around. So I, I am, I am uh, somewhat optimistic about this. I'm somewhat, I'm optimistic about Iran. I'm optimistic about North Korea. I'm not the only one. General Mattis, my main man, he's optimistic about some of this stuff. Play six. Reassure certainly uh, their capability concerns us on the military side. However. Uh, we see uh, there is some reason for optimism. We said all along this was a diplomatically led effort uh, backed up by military force. I think there is reason for some optimism that uh, these talks could be fruitful. Optimism. That's all I'm saying there is. The possibility of things getting better. Actually, I really like what Ari Fleischer had to say on, on this point of optimism as well. You know, he's the former White House press secretary under Bush. Play eight. If Donald Trump is right that Kim Jong-un wants to bring his country into the 21st century, that is the only reason North Korea would change its behavior. That is the huge reward, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for North Korea, because they'll have a thriving economy. You look at South Korea, they're the same people. It'll take time, but the North Koreans could be a very successful country, just as South Korea is. The question is, do they want to be? Do they have the will to be, and will they give up the nuclear weapons? And the only precedent I can see for this summit meeting takes me back to 1978 or 79, and it was Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat who shocked the world when Sadat said Egypt will change, Egypt mm -hmm. wants peace with Israel. They didn't listen to any of the people underneath him who said, don't have a summit meeting, it's too risky. Mm -hmm. They did it. That's the analogy I have in mind here. Yeah. And whether this will be successful or not, that's really going to be up to Kim Jong-un. It is indeed. So... We're we're in a bit of a wait and see on this. I think Singapore, by the way, is a very good point, a very good place for the meeting to occur. Uh, it, it's from a security standpoint, it's great. By the way, a lot of very fancy hotels there, so the uh, delegation, anyone who's there, is going to have a nice time. But uh, Singapore knows how to lock things down, and uh, I think it, it's a, a very very good venue for all this. 
Uh, it's also a place that, you know, it, it's it's going to set the stage properly in many regards. Um, 844-900-2825. You want a chat team? 844-900-BUCK. Uh, let's maybe check in on what's going on bit more in the realm of domestic politics coming up here. What's going on with the Mueller probe and all the other things crack-a-lacking in the background? Stay with me. When you're at work, you know your dogs are cooped up inside, so if you want to let out Fido or Max or maybe Buck, but guess what? When you let them off to burn some energy, they're running around the yard. Sometimes, though, they start digging, and they can get under your fence. And you may have tried to even put stuff there to stop them, but you know what? You should stop all that and just try Dig Defense. It's genius, and it solves major problems that a lot of pet owners have to deal with digging. Dig Defense extends the protection of your fence underground, so no amount of digging is going to let your pets out of the yard or let predators into the yard. And we're talking predators like foxes, skunks, and raccoons. You don't want any of them there. Dig Defense helps you out with all that and more. It's available online at Lowe's, Menards, Wayfair and StopTheDig.com. That's right. That's all you need to go. StopTheDig.com is the solution to pets digging under the fence. StopTheDig.com now. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Barack Obama created this problem because he said, hey, bring your kids here illegally. Uh, He never tried to do anything to legalize uh, those kids that came here. He just said, come here illegally and we'll look the other way. Mm -hmm. What President Trump has said is we're getting back to rule of law, Mm -hmm. but we also acknowledge that there were 690,000 kids that came in under DACA, and we want to solve that problem. Let's address it in a way where you can get the president's signature rather than some show vote where you're not solving the problem, but you're just actually making it worse. Here's one of the problems. Rule of law is not exactly enough here. Because if you're not going to have uh, widespread deportation on the table for and, and interior enforcement. If you're just going to try to catch people at the border, really, which is what now. So you could say, well, Buck, now you're already discarding rule law. I know, but is anyone talking about wide scale, large scale deportation of illegal immigrants in the country? No, they are not. At least no one in, no one in the White House, no one in Congress. And then when you add into it some of the loopholes and the current laws that are in place and how they can be exploited, you start to see, oh, wait a second. There's a whole lot of ways to come into this country and game the system, scan the system. I mean, dreamers are are one of the best examples. I keep saying, guys, I'm telling you they do not have to prove anything. Really, I'm sure they fill out paperwork. I'm sure technically on it it says, you know, you can't lie to the federal government. How many dreamers do you think have or even would be prosecuted for falsifying any of the DACA paperwork? By the way, I don't like calling them dreamers, but DACA recipients. How many? I think the answer is probably zero. Maybe it's one or two, but I'm guessing it's zero. I don't have to prove that they came here through no fault of their own. They don't have to prove they came here at a certain age. They just say, yeah, I fall within the basic parameters. You know, I'm I'm a an illegal immigrant from Mexico or Central America around a certain age where I can make this case, and so I'm going to apply for DACA. Notice how we're led to believe that there are all these people that could have applied but didn't because they were worried about the federal government. 
maybe just a lot of people realize, oh, wow, you mean I can just apply for this thing and then stay in the country indefinitely? I'll, I'll sign up for that, too. You mean no one ever gets rejected from it? Or if they're rejected, they're not prosecuted, so why not take a shot? It's a scam. Lots of stuff about it is a scam. I'm not saying there aren't any people that are brought here. Of course, there are people who are brought here as kids, but I'm sorry. I don't, I don't think it's whatever. I mean, officially, DACA recipients are in the neighborhood of 800,000, but the people that could be covered under DACA is a few million. Once you start adding in these, and, and then, by the way, no one who's related to somebody with DACA is going to be deported. You're going to legalize them. You're going to legalize them. I mean, lawlessness on immigration begets lawlessness. And we got lawlessness all over the place. And we got bad laws on top of that. It's a big problem. Kirsten Nielsen, DHS secretary, uh, I saw reporting that she's been having some back and forth with Trump. Now, I don't know. Is the, this is you know, it's anonymous sourcing, but it's coming from allegedly coming from the White House. But that, you know, Kirsten Nielsen is trying to tell Trump, look, I'm doing everything that I legally can. What else do you want me to do right now with the people showing up at the border saying that they are, uh, you know, refugees from El Salvador or Honduras? Guess what? We have to process them, and that's what they're doing. And in terms of the illegals that are still crossing the border, and there's been a surge recently in those numbers, how are we going to do more than we're doing right now when we don't have a wall? Congress didn't get funding for a wall. Trump didn't veto the omnibus bill without the addition of a wall. You know, There's some very real concerns here about how effective we could even be if we had the political will to enforce our immigration laws. You know, I, I think we, we've been led that, that there's this perception that if only our political class uh, would enforce the laws in the books, everything would get a lot easier. There'd still be illegals. I mean, we'd get better, but there'd still be illegals coming in. There'd still be. And if you're not going to do interior enforcement, you still have 12 million illegal aliens in this country that are are de facto permanent residents. So... This is why this is such a a thorny issue. Also saw this piece in the Washington Times uh, that half, it's a lot, half of all Americans live under sanctuary policies that shield illegal immigrants from law enforcement. Think about that. Now, you might be saying, Buck, how is that possible? The single biggest illegal immigrant communities in the country are the, sing, are the largest metropolitan areas, largest cities. Chicago, New York, Los Angeles. In fact, those states, which include uh, two of the three most populous states, California and New York, but California, New York, and Illinois are sanctuary states. We're not even sanctuary. We're not even talking about sanctuary cities anymore. So just about just about fifty percent of the country's population lives in a sanctuary jurisdiction now. And now understand that that then gets tied into the political base of the Democrat Party in all those cities, and the Democrat Party is, if not open borders, for a state of uh, of porous borders, quasi open borders. And legalization, am- mass amnesty, and porous borders. That is what they are in favor of. Because you can't compete with that if you're the Republican Party, if you're conservatism. 
You can't compete with new voters all the time showing up, not picked by the immigration policy we have for their skills, for their ability to compete economically, and who are going to just, as a matter of course, need more government assistance, government subsidy, and expenditure than immigrants who be picked for their skills. This is not a complicated concept, but somehow it is really uh, politically a third rail for a lot of folks. Well, for Democrats, not for Republicans. Although I would note, we could also toss into this whole situation. There's a lot of infighting right now among Republicans in the Congress over what to do, if anything, about immigration, which I find uh, troubling but not surprising. Tensions, this is a piece up on thehill.com today. Tensions on immigration erupt in House GOP. And this is what it says. House Republican leaders are scrambling to stop an effort by rank and file members to force votes on immigration with lawmakers openly defying their calls to stand down. Uh, Centrist representatives Carlos uh, Cubello, Jeff Denham, and Will Hurd, all Republicans facing tough reelection races, introduced a discharge petition on Wednesday morning to trigger a series of immigration votes. Discharge petitions are traditionally seen as a serious affront to leadership, making members reluctant to sign on. <sighs> so the GOP is not unified on immigration. And without getting into the specifics of who thinks what and where they are on one issue or another, here's what I can tell you. There are a lot of Republicans that don't want to be pushed on the issue too much, don't want to have to say too much about it, but they also favor a highly permissive approach to immigration. Highly. That's their jam. That's what they want to do. I think a lot of Republicans, and we don't even really know because they haven't taken a vote on it, uh, would vote in favor not just of DACA, but of, of actual amnesty across the board. That's my belief. A lot of them want it. However many you think there are, there are many more that want it. And I think Trump, I mentioned this conversations back and forth with Kirsten Nielsen, DHS. I think his frustration is, I promised the people of America that I would secure the border. We haven't done it yet. I promised them a wall. We haven't done it yet. You know, what can we do to get things going here? And I think Kirsten Nielsen's probably looking back at him saying, look, dude, she probably doesn't say that. She probably says, look, Mr. President. But, you know, in Buck speak, she says, look, dude, uh, there's only so much we can do with the resources we have. The laws are the laws right now, and there are some loopholes and some some holes in them. And when you look at the sanctuary jurisdictions and how much political weight they have, there's just simply not the political will in the Congress to do more. And absent legislation on this, Trump is not going to be able... That's why the wall is so important. The wall is forever, right? Legislation, in a sense, can kind of come and go, but the wall is forever. You get a wall built... It will change the game for enforcement at the southern border. Without a wall, next time Democrats have the House and the Senate, we all know amnesty. They went for Obamacare, but they could have gone for amnesty. And I think in, in retrospect, some of them might feel like, you know what, maybe we should have done amnesty you know, with Obama right away because then we would have a supermajority of Democrat voters because, by the way, they, they say, oh, they won't be able to vote. Lies. They'll be able to. Just give it time. They'll change that, too. Who's going to want to defy the uh, 
the newly made 12 million Americans. Who's going to want to upset them and their children and their constituents and their you know family members and friends and everything? They'll pass additional legislation. Say, oh, yeah, and they can vote. If they had the House and the Senate, they would absolutely do it if they could. This is what we're facing here. I mean, you know, I, I think we're probably going into the midterms. Let's be realistic. I think we're going to the midterms without major legislation on immigration passing. And without the Trump administration, I'm just going to say it, without achieving much on this issue. Let's be honest. And it is a signature issue. Some would say the signature issue of the Trump administration. So I'm not, I know right now, it sounds like I'm trying to balance out that Trump had an awesome week, which he did because of Iran and and North Korea and uh, a whole whole bunch of things, which I'll probably run over, uh, run through, not run over again tomorrow. But on this issue, there's just not the, there's not the movement, not the momentum we need to see. And, you know, I, I don't want, while I think the Democrats can't run on messages like the economy, I don't think they can run on it successfully, they'll do it, but don't underestimate their deviousness, right? Don't, don't think that the enemy is less capable than they are, politically speaking. They will have some, some narrative concocted here, and if they get in a position to push for greater amnesty, they'll use it. They'll use it as a way. You know, it used to be that I think Democrats are worried about losing certain members of their constituency. Notably, Democrats were worried 20 years ago about upsetting uh, black Americans and, and people in unions with illegal immigration. And I'm not imagining this or even, you know, just surmising it. The New York Times would write editorials about this, about how it, it hurts the organized labor movement and it hurts the black community to have a lot of illegal immig- low-skilled illegal immigration. Uh, but now they've realized, forget all that. Because if we bring in enough illegals, we can overwhelm, we can flood the system and then get anything else we want down the line because they will change the demographic makeup of the country to suit their political needs. Why convince the American people when you can change the American people? That has been the Democrat approach now for going on 20 years. And all the lip service about, you know, uh, securing the border, it's just... That was just to lull us into a false sense of bipartisanship that didn't exist. And there are Republicans that were complicit in this, too. I I need Trump to focus on this. I I at least need to see the Republicans in the House and the Senate fight on this. I mean, if they get blocked procedurally, okay, we can talk about maybe they have to go Newton. Maybe this is the issue where the Senate has to say, you know what, no more of this. We need now, now you need 60 votes to do basically anything. That's not actually, it's not in the Constitution. That's not the way this is supposed to be. That's a self-imposed constraint by the Senate that could be erased. We need action on immigration. We cannot wait until after the midterms. At a minimum, they need to pass legislation to show the American people what it is that the Republicans stand for on this and what it is that the Democrats do. You know, make the Democrats get on TV and, and explain to the American people, yeah, you know, we... We don't really think that there's anybody who's not a violent felon that should be barred from coming to and staying in this country. Basically open borders, right? People say, oh, yeah, maybe they have to check in with Border Patrol or with with Immigration and Customs Enforcement before they come in. But, you know, they got to make sure they have access to different government programs. And I'm not saying they're not going to stop and 
check to see who's coming in. They're just going to let everyone in. Where is this team? Where is this Trump administration on immigration? I need more than what I'm seeing, and I think you do too. Or maybe I'm wrong. Let me know. 844-900-BUCK if you want to call in. 844-900-2825. We got much more. Stay with me. So today, we're here to send a message to the world that we are not going to let the country be overwhelmed. People are not going to caravan or otherwise stampede our border. We need legality and integrity in our immigration system. That's why the Department of Homeland Security is now referring 100% of illegal southwest border crossings to the Department of Justice for prosecution. I have put in place a zero tolerance policy for illegal entry uh, on our southwest border. If you cross the border unlawfully, then we will prosecute you. It's that simple. Well, they got to catch him first. It's not always that easy. And we'll see. That was uh, our buddy Jeff Sessions. I want to follow up on this, though, because that uh, the Republican feud that's going on right now in the Congress, it's over so-called centrists, which are really just weak Republicans, uh, who are trying to force the House leadership to take up a vote to protect DACA recipients. Oh, yeah, that's right. These so-called moderate Republicans, which I don't like that at all, right? Because it makes Republicanism feel like some kind of a, you know, uh, an affliction. Oh, it's only a moderately bad head cold, right? It's a, it's a moderate Republican. Um, centrist is even better than that, at least, right? But how about liberal Republicans? There you go. Now we're getting closer. They want to get on the record voting for DACA. See, this is exactly what I'm talking about. We do not have a unified Republican front on this issue at all. There are plenty of Republicans that I think would vote for DACA and DAPA, Deferred Action of Parents of Arrivals. Now you're talking about 5 million people. You're already halfway there to complete amnesty. And remember, with each amnesty that actually happens, you get legal challenges and you get, oh my gosh, go on and on and on. People in the courts, oh, I should have been covered under it. I should have gotten this. And, you know, ACLU will just do everything it can to. You know, the ACLU really exists now, along with Media Matters and some other terrible organizations, Southern Poverty Law Center, just to kick at the load-bearing walls of Western civilization. That's that's really what they want to do, you know? Not helpful. Not helpful at all. Uh, disappointing to see some of these Republican members of Congress that, that want to force a vote on, on DACA, uh, because clearly they just think that it's going to help them in their districts. Well, what about the rest of the country, guys? What about everyone else listening to the show who doesn't live in a contested district, who doesn't care about the political future of, of a few people or a few dozen people even in the Congress? Does anything, did they get their interest protected here at all? No, of course not. Uh, what matters is the Republican machine that wants to make sure that it stays the Republican machine, then it stays in power. And they will abandon principles and sell out and do all kinds of stuff. 
Very disappointing. We got to watch them on immigration, folks. I'm telling you, they're gonna pull us. They're gonna pull a switcheroo on this one if we don't hold their feet to the fire. Uh, Mueller probe. It's terrible. It's almost its one year anniversary. We'll talk about it in uh, just a few and how it should shut down. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. I want to get into all the latest on the Mueller probe with you, but before I do that, I just want to take a step back and discuss something else with you. And that is that, you know, in this business that I'm in, which whatever media, political punditry, analysis, politics, all all different Ways of describing what I've got going on here, right? But uh, sometimes you get heated. Sometimes you feel like you're uh, under attack or you maybe feel like you've gone a little too far on the attack. It's going to happen. But if you're a decent person, if you're actually somebody who needs to maintain a certain level of character and, and just integrity in what you do, there's some things you some places you won't go in your public disputes with other political folks. There's some things you just wouldn't say. And I think it really exposes um a a very common problem not among just Democrats in general. Look, I've got a lot of friends who are Democrats, date a lot of Democrats, right? I mean I don't I don't hate Democrats, obviously. That's crazy. But I do think that there's something in the Democrat ethos that is particularly susceptible to uh, acting in a vile manner. I do believe that. I Call me crazy. And I think it's reflected in the way that a lot of media, uh, media Democrats act and how they treat people. You know, you also just see this, for example, I mean, th- these are... Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? This isn't like a scientific study I'm doing here. These are just, this is anecdotal evidence. But for example, whenever a liberal steps out of line, you can count on conservatives like me, but conservatives uh, like uh, Tucker Carlson and, and, and many, many others to say, okay, hold on a second, folks. You know, somebody shouldn't lose their job for one mistake. Let's let's dial this back a little bit. You know, this we, we don't want people getting fired for what they say. You don't really have that with liberals. You really don't. They're like, yeah, he's conservative. Get him. Finish him off. End his career. No more livelihood. You know, that's their approach. It's just the way they do things. It happens time and time again. I mean, I think it's fair to say that that powerful liberals in the media and in politics are nastier. They just are. And with all that, I, I then turn your attention to Philippe Reigns. I don't know if it's... Yeah, it, it has to be Philippe because he spells his name that way. Uh, he is very close confidant of Hillary Clinton. Uh, referred to as the gatekeeper in the last election for her. He was brought to the State Department. This is, by the way, one of the reasons why I had to leave the federal bureaucracy under Obama. Because, yes, it did bother me that Obama was the commander-in-chief when I was the CIA. It did. I'm just going to tell you the truth. did not like that aspect of the job. Uh, I also didn't want to be 
in a position in the federal bureaucracy at all where I'd have to respond to you know, taskings and questions and give briefings to people like Philippe Reigns, who was brought in to be like deputy uh, deputy uh, secretary of deputy assistant secretary of state or something like that. I think he was DAS level uh, for strategic communications. So he was brought in as a senior State Department person, this clown, out and out clown. Uh, very, very tight with the Clintons, very tight with Chelsea Clinton and, and all the rest. Okay, why am I talking about this guy? You may have also seen some stories that uh, different gossip magazines have been running about the, uh, well, the separated or the separation of uh, Donnie Trump Jr. and his and his wife. Now, which, look, it's always sad, you know, I. I, I I don't I never would be somebody who disagrees with someone's politics. And by the way, I agree with Donnie Trump Jr.'s politics, and I like Donnie Trump Jr. But I'm just saying, if it was on the other side, if this was a Democrat, I don't I don't dance on the grave of another man's marriage, you know, or woman. I don't, I don't do that. I don't I don't cheer. This is also a problem I have, by the way, with the whole Democrat ethos when it comes to Mueller and the special counsel. I don't want to see all the Democrats get sent to prison. Look, Hillary broke the law. So if you were chanting, lock her up. I mean, and she's broken a lot of laws. I mean, she's gotten a lot of passes, right? But I, so it's a little different. But in general, with Democrats, I, I don't want them sent to prison. I don't want their kids to have to see them through like a plexiglass, you know, visiting room. I just think they're wrong and they've got bad ideas. But, but they would, you know, cheer someone like me. Oh, he fills in for Glenn and Rush and Sean and nationally syndicated conservative talk host, you know, you get, they would cheer no matter what I got sent to prison for. If I got sent to prison for, you know, uh, going over my allotted grouper catch or something, you know, they'd be like, that's great. Our fisheries are critical. Send them to prison. They don't care. They just want to see the other side suffer. And I think you see a lot of the lack of character of people in the media, too, with the pylons. You know, who's really not who really celebrates the downfall of public figures that are their political opposition? You know, who really sinks their teeth into that really kind of enjoys it? That's why, I mean, I think Media Matters, for example, is just a trash organization full of trash people. I could I could not do what they do and feel good about myself. Look for the moment to pounce to end someone's career for mistakes real and imagined, by the way. I mean, I had to laugh. I, it wasn't even Media Matters. It was Mediaite, which is a... They have some conservative writers, some liberal writers, and it's just kind of a general media site. Only people in media go to this site, by the way, but we're all very aware of it. And they said that I compared John Kerry to the Taliban. It's just laughable. I didn't compare John Kerry to the Taliban. I compared acting as a shadow government to what the Taliban does, which is set up shadow governors so i mean they're just you know but that wasn't a big deal right and, and anybody anyone left who ever wants to debate afghanistan foreign policy or any of these things i'm ha- happy to give them a free lesson and a buck slap at that but I, you know I, and that's one of the reasons why i make fun of people here but i look i punch up i don't go after people that are in a really tough spot you know i don't go after people that are uh suffering through an addiction or ill health or you know i, I don't do that and if i do by the way you know, always, always keep me honest in that, and I, and I will uh, either stop or apologize or you know whatever is needed. Because I, I come to this show, my family listens to this show, my parents listen to this show. I come to this with a, an integrity and an honor, and that's a very important part of what I do. And it's one of the reasons why I feel proud of what I do, 
you know, regardless of the ratings and everything else, which, by the way, are very good, but don't worry about that for now. Regardless of all that, it's important to me. And so it's with that that I see a senior Clinton aide who, in reading about the marital troubles of Donald, uh, Donald Trump Jr. and uh, Vanessa, um, well, Vanessa Trump, I forget what her original name was, uh, and then this article about Vanessa Trump's high school boyfriend who was, according to the New York Post, uh, involved in gang activity. That Philippe Reigns, a senior State Department officer, okay, with close ties to the Clintons, buddy-buddy with Hillary, close to Bill, close to Chelsea. I mean, this guy is at the top of the Democrat swamp pyramid. This is what he wrote to Donald Trump Jr. on Twitter. Quote, Vanessa being with a Latin king must have driven you. This is he's talking about this man's wife, mother of his five children. Okay, Vanessa being with a Latin king must have driven you insanely jealous. The machismo, the passion, tough act to follow. Did you wonder if she fantasized about Valentin Rivera when intimate with you? She did every time. End quote. Now, I'm just letting that letting that sink in for a moment. That is a dirtbag, scummy thing to say to anyone. First of all, I mean it's just it's you know it's it's, cra- it's crazy on a whole lot of levels, right? Like for you know it's. Just, it's it's a pathetic thing to say. It's a n- deeply nasty thing to say. But do you think that Philippe Reigns will uh he won't be invited to like the next big, you know, Vanity Fair party with all the Democrats? No, he'll be there. Do you think that there will say that uh, you know, he needs to go on the apology tour as though he maybe said a word, you know, he referred to like transgender people in the wrong way, has to go bend the knee and and kiss everyone's shoes until they finally, you know, allow him back into polite society? No. No. Because Democrats are nasty. And Democrats don't feel bad about this. And in the era of Trump, anything they can do to attack anyone, especially someone in Trump's family, they go for it. They go for it. Um, so like I said, this is not some random troll on the Internet. You know, the left loves to play that game. Look at this racist thing that, you know, this Twitter account, racist clan member 72573 said. This guy has at least 15 followers on Twitter. Look at what he said. We need to tell CNN about this. You know, yeah, this is somebody who's important to the Democrat Party, somebody who's connected, who should know better, who it was. It was just I'm sorry. I'm just. It was a guy in communications at a senior at the most senior level at the State Department. And this is how we would this is he wrote this out. It wasn't like a spur of the moment, you know, said it. During a heated debate or something, not that that would be okay, but just a scummy thing to say. A low-life loser comment from a low-life loser person. Philly Brands, I've never met the guy, and I don't care to. But this is just way over the line. And, I, and his apology, by the way, wasn't even really an apology. It's even worse. He wrote, with time to think, I regret the tweet, but I wrote, I wrote it, I own it, so leaving it. Oh, he's going to leave it up. 
Friendlies, I'm sorry to disappoint. It's a learning moment. Vanessa Valentine, wrong to include you. Mag- maggots, which is MAGA spelled with a T. Take your vitriolic hy- hypocrisy and shove it. Junior, you ain't seen nothing yet. So he's, he's not even apologizing to Donald Trump Jr. Uh, you know, folks, there, there, are, there are limits. That, and every man I know listening to this knows exactly what I'm talking about. It doesn't matter how big, you know, it doesn't matter how big you are or the person saying it doesn't matter what the circumstances. There are lines you you cross and you do so at your peril. You make comments like this, like what Philippe Reigns did about a man's wife. You know, he just made said to to hand you in a in a in a man way. However, that may be. And you're asking for it. So, uh, you know, I just I see this and I think to myself. It's not even surprising it comes from Democrats. This is just how they are. You know, this is how they operate. And there's such a, there's just a, a, really a celebration on the left in this country of the of a, a lack of character, of dishonesty, of fighting dirty, whatever it is, as long as it's for the cause. As I say to you, it's it feels very Soviet. You know, if it's. If it's for the betterment of the party, if it improves the standing of the party against its enemies, anything you do is okay, is excusable, and and is even praiseworthy, no matter how grotesque, underhanded, and disgusting. I mean, Philippe Rain should be ashamed of himself. He better watch it with comments like this. Donald Trump Jr. is obviously a member of the first family. You know, he's going to just ignore this and take it in stride. Uh, but he doesn't want to say this to some other Republicans about their significant others, their wives. I can tell you that much. This guy's a punk, a first-class punk. I'll be right back. It's been uh, about a year since this investigation began. Uh, our administration has provided over a million documents. We fully cooperated in it. And in the interest of the country, I think it's time to wrap it up. I got to agree with Mike Pence. I know people are giving Pence a hard time in the press recently, but there there are competing. This is one thing that gets left out of this whole discussion about Mueller and everything else. There are competing goods here, competing goals. It's not as simple as just, you know, well, we got to justice. We got to find out. Russia collusion and all the stuff with it, you know, is Russia and the collusion. No, there's a country that the president has to run and they have provided no evidence of any kind that President Trump did anything wrong. And yet he has people all around him that are being pulled into uh, perjury traps and spending hundreds of thousands. It'll end up being millions altogether on lawyers. And going through all this, and you know, it's I mean, CNN is the Mueller probe slash Stormy Daniels channel. That's all they do. You know, I just I just watch the feeds. Oh, look at that! More Mueller, more Stormy Daniels. What a surprise! You know, this guy Avenatti is running around and being treated like some kind of luminary, like he's a thought leader on things. Meanwhile, who's some very good analysis today? By the way, is uh, making the rounds. Who's paying this guy, Avenatti? Stormy Daniels isn't paying him. At least not that I'm aware. How is he getting information about possible payments to Michael Cohen? Who leaked that to him? Oh, he won't say because he's a lawyer. Right. I wonder. I wonder I wonder if anyone who has, say, subpoena power maybe is 
pushing some information to Avenatti. And now I know Avenatti's even backed off saying that he had the right Michael Cohen. But it does make you wonder, doesn't it? Who is paying for this guy? And, and why did all of a sudden a lawyer come along who told Stormy Daniels to, yeah, go ahead, violate the NDA that you signed, the non-disclosure agreement, possibly subjecting yourself to millions of dollars of liability? Yeah, just go for it. It's almost like maybe there's some other agenda at work here, right? Like we can see that this isn't really about, and, and, and about what? Getting to the truth of whether the president had an affair 10 years ago? Who cares? At this point, I, I, I have to wonder, is someone really supposed, we're really supposed to dig down into that? And the president's dealing with thwarting an, a nuclear-armed Iran, stopping, ending a nuclear-armed North Korea, a booming economy, record low unemployment, tackling the media, finally humbling many of the pompous jerks in the mainstream media that really need a good dose of humble pie, and we're supposed to be worried about what some porn star says 10 years ago. It just doesn't just doesn't wash, doesn't work. And like I said, there's the competing good here of the, the country and having a government that can actually focus and do its job, uh, which is already tough enough, versus finding out more about you know, Russian sock puppets and, and Facebook trolls. and This is just lunacy. It really is. I mean, I'm, I have lost patience with it. I have to keep talking about it because we're in a fight and it can't be a one-way fight or else we'll just lose, right? But I don't want to hear about this stuff anymore. Oh, I got to talk to you about this woman who strips down to defeat the patriarchy. Quite a way to go. That's up next. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. Make, make no mistake. America. Ready. Great. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. President Trump is speaking. Let's go to him. We fight to build their borders but we don't fight and spend no money to build our borders. Figure that one out. We're fighting and we're finally putting America first. And remember the last time I did this, and this started two and a half years ago when I just started. People were not saying Merry Christmas anymore. The big store chains weren't saying Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. They weren't doing it. They weren't saying Merry Christmas. Now they're saying Merry Christmas again. To bring back our jobs, we're cracking down on unfair trade. We want trade deals that are fair and, by the way, reciprocal. And we love our farmers. We're taking care of our farmers. And we love our factory workers. We love our workers. live in Elkhart, Indiana. For decades, American presidents responded to foreign cheating on trade. Cheating! There's no other word for it. Cheating! 
They responded with silence. They didn't do anything. They were silent. Silencio. Let's not rock the boat. Oh, that's fine. We have a hundred billion trade deficit with Mexico. Think of it. Hundred billion trade deficit a year with Mexico. We have a trade deficit with almost every country in the world. We're changing that around rapidly. We racked up trillions of dollars in trade deficits, also known as losses, while other countries stole our factories, stole our plants, stole our wealth, and stole our jobs. But America's long silence is over. And you see what's happening. Car companies are coming back into the United States. They're moving back in. Chrysler just announced. Japan is building big ones. We're expanding our plants. All right, so the president's out there in Elkhart. We're, we're going to, yeah, I, I want to jump in here because I, also, I still need to tell you about the woman who's fighting the patriarchy. Uh, think about the economic message you just heard there from the president. What are the Democrats going to be able to mount in opposition to that going in the midterms? The answer is not very much. And think about the messenger versus whatever they're going to bring up on their side of things. So and it was interesting to hear the president out in Indiana. Um, and uh, we will maybe come back into it if there's some more stuff that we think is uh, central to our discussion here. So I, I mentioned this. I did want to talk about it because I got other things this hour set up that I'm also going to get to. Talk about uh, Michelle Obama's recent comments on men failing up. We'll get to that. A whole bunch of that. Oh, and the craziest consent teaching on TV I've ever seen. You need to ask your baby before you can change its diaper. I kid you not. That's coming up, too. Uh, but first, Cornell. Probably best known as the worst of the Ivy League schools. I know. You could boo me, those of you who went there. You send me the emails. You can, you can trash talk Amherst for all you want, but it's that's fine. Cornell's the worst of the Ivies. It's, it's, it's still a great school, right? It's just you're in a rich neighborhood, and you got the worst house on the block. But it's still a rich neighborhood. I just like the needle Cornell people. I can't help it. I know people, you can, you can get mad at me for it. I know, I'm sorry. It also reminds me of Andy from uh, The Office. He's like, I went to Cornell. It was in an acapella group. Anyway, uh, a Cornell senior was giving a, uh, giving a, a presentation in a class, and the professor uh, told her, that she maybe what Professor Mag Magor uh, is the name or Major I don't know Major let's I don't know how you uh, yeah Major let's just go with that uh, told her that maybe her shorts were a little short and that it might be distracting from the presentation she was giving so this senior at Cornell has got to be twenty one or twenty two years old decided to as she said. Uh, during her acting in public performance in everyday life class. Oh, uh, you know what, guys? This is all, I think this is all a high concept fraud. That's what this is. I don't think this was, I don't think this was in earnest, but it's pretty fun. I mean, it's kind of funny anyway. Uh, she now has gone viral in her underwear, so there's that. She probably has a, uh, a TV career ahead of her. Leticia Chai is her name. 
Uh, she set up a fake. Wait, do we have audio of this? Guys, there is audio. All right, play the audio of Leticia Chai stripping in her Cornell class down to her underwear to, quote, protest the patriarchy. Because this topic transcends all of our social identities and taps right into the heart of who we are. Because I'm more than Asian. I am more than a woman. I am more than Letitia Chai. I am a human being. Is, is she in an acting class, or do you think that was an earnest? I can't really tell. This is during her thesis presentation to protest her professor. Who wants to guess if she got an A? I'm telling you she got an A. It's a female professor, by the way. So I'm not, that's not a sexist comment. I'm just saying that the professor has got to give her an A now because it's become a big issue, it's become a big thing. So she's stripped down to her undies. Now there's photos of her and her undies all over the Internet. And... She says she's protesting the patriarchy. You know, I, I got problems with this on a, on a number of levels. One, somehow third-wave feminists, radical feminists, whatever you want to call them, take this position that, you know, you're not allowed to discuss the appropriateness of, of a woman's dress in any issue at any time, really. Uh, you know, this is why you also get radical feminists that like to walk around just topless just because because they're trying to make some point about being topless. But the <laughs> but the but the point is, if you're giving a presentation in a class, if you are actually in the workplace, there is such a thing as appropriate and professional dress for men and for women. And that's a legitimate discussion to have. And if you're wearing particularly revealing clothing in a professional setting uh like the daisy dukes or the short jeans right yeah for example male or female wearing the daisy dukes i mean you know i feel like i could pull off daisy dukes under the right circumstances maybe maybe all of you are wretched right now (laughs) there we go correct john correct uh but you know the, the Daisy Dukes, uh, that would be not the thing. If, if you're going up to give a, a presentation on your, you know, neuroscience thesis, I think that the professor panel might not necessarily get the full depth and gravity of your research and your message if you're up there in a bikini or if you're a guy and you're up there in uh, a, a mankini, which is also a thing known as a bathing suit in Europe. Uh, you know, people always say Speedo. Speedo is a brand. It's not really... I feel like they say, well, are you wearing a Speedo? Why do we... Get, there's a lot of brands that make those kinds of... of uh, snug... Uh, I, I, have a very, I have a very close friend who insists, by the way, on wearing the more Euro-style uh, bathing suits. And, and, and I, I can't... You know, I'm so, I just always think it's funny. It never gets old. I'm just like, why do you choose to wear the super tight, snug little, you know? And he's just like, this is how I like to roll. And I say, all right, go for it. Uh, But anyway, so there's appropriate and inappropriate dress for different situations. This professor, people have actually stood up for her and said uh, that she's, um, she's trying to, quote, impart the importance of professionalism in public speaking situations, quote, uh, Major is a gift to Cornell 
and that Shai's post, the Shai as a student, did not adequately represent Majur's past and continued advocacy for women and minorities, and that Majur had apologized on more than one occasion. 11 of the 13 students in the class issued a statement saying they supported Shai's protest, but not her version of what happened. You know, this is what I, this is what you end up seeing in this. If your cause is righteous, even if you're lying or making stuff up or misrepresenting it, if you are, quote, quote, raising awareness, the left will come to your side and say, yeah, it's great. Raise, raise awareness. It's all you have to do. If you're raising awareness, you get a pass on everything else. I find this to be uh, a bit a bit troubling. Also, I don't think the patriarchy gets upset if there was... If there was such a thing as the patriarchy, I think being a, a young, uh, telegenic female, 22, who strips down to her underwear on video, I don't think the patriarchy's like, yeah, we feel really chastened and uh, we would, uh, we would uh, really never do this again. Uh, I, I, I'd never want to see a lady in her underwear again. So uh, we, are, we are thoroughly... Uh, disabused of our patriarchal notions. I don't think that's how they react to this. If there were, in fact, a patriarchy, I'm just saying. Uh, I'm going to tell you about uh, some Michelle Obama comments when we come back. If we as women are still suspicious of one another, if we're still... If, 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 if we still have this crazy, crazy bar for each other that we don't have for men, yeah. if, if we're still doing that today, if we're more comfortable with, if we're not comfortable with the notion that a woman could be our president compared to what? You know, I wish that girls could fail as bad as men do and be okay. Because let me tell you, watching men fail up, it, it, is, it is frustrating. Very frustrating. It is frustrating to see a lot of men blow it and win. And we hold ourselves to these crazy, crazy standards. So that's Michelle Obama, who is, who is treated as the closest thing that America has to uh, royalty. I, I don't think anybody would really dispute that. I mean, Michelle Obama is among the most, uh, I know by a, not a lot of you are probably not all that impressed, but by the, the general media and Hollywood consensus and the Democrat Party, I think she's running, by the way, but we'll talk about that more another time. Or maybe we'll talk about it now. She's among the most beloved figures in the country that crosses sort of the political, cultural, and uh, you know media sides of things and i just have to say that whole slew of words she just put out there was blather it really was it was nonsense and and what i can see is that this is someone who one is not is used to at this point just not being challenged and i I would really put that to you when do you think was the last time somebody told michelle obama to her face you're wrong about about anything it's been at least eight or ten years, right? It certainly hasn't happened since she was the first lady. And I've, I've, I've actually never seen her in a debate. So, you know, I, I understand. I've never seen Melania in a debate either, but that's a different thing, right? Now we're talking about somebody who's no longer the first lady, but is still out there and 
and is treated like her opinions on everything carry tremendous weight. And I, I would just invite you in, and I would even say, if you happen to be one of my Democrat peeps who listens to this show, be honest about it for a second. Her whole thing there about women failing as bad as, uh, as men, I mean, badly as men, and be okay, we're talking about half of the world versus half of the world. I mean, you have to try really hard to take the culture of victimology within the Democrat Party and apply it to uh, all women against all men and do it in a way that you think you're being constructive or, or in any way helpful. Uh, it, this is just the, uh, the, the pandering of the politics of frustration from Michelle Obama, right? Uh, crazy bar. I mean, I really I wrote down some things as she was speaking there. I mean, I heard the clip last uh, last night and I wanted to talk about it today on the show. A crazy bar for each other than we have for men. So so she's saying that we have a, a lower standard for men than we do for women. That's just not a statement that has any intellectual worth in it whatsoever. Meaning there's there's it's not defensible. It's not a smart thing to say. It, it's so broad and so flimsy as to be really meaningless, except it, it panders people. Yeah, that's right. I'm frustrated because men are bad. Yeah. You know, women in the crowd. Yeah. This is really toxic. And for for Michelle Obama, who, as I said, is among the most revered. And, and look, now she's she's not just the member of the first family. She's out there giving speeches and interviews and a very public person, very much a part of the national discussion on a whole bunch of political issues but for her to be out there and really playing to the resentment of women. And I know a lot of the, you know, a, a lot of you listening right now, the women listen to the show, by the way, we have a particularly strong contingent of women for the talk radio world who listen to the Buck Sexton show. So ladies high five and thank you. People are like, Oh wow. A lot of women listen to Buck show. I was like, that's right. Cause Buck just does content for everybody. Uh, but you're probably thinking to yourself, yeah, that's so. It's that's like, it's really like you're like you think you're talking to a room full of losers. In this case, a room full of women who are losers. You know, yeah, like men. It's so much easier to be men, and we don't hold them to the same standards. And you know, men fail up. We got an opioid epidemic in this country where men are actually declining in life expectancy, and we're talking about men failing up. I'm sorry, but it's just if she wants to talk about specifics, you know, you know, men are paid more than women in this industry or that industry. I'm happy to tackle that. But just to, to speak about it in just in such a broad way is not it's the opposite of helpful. It's actually hurtful. It's not smart. And I just get the sense from Michelle Obama that no one ever tells her that what she says is actually not profound at all. It's really the opposite of profound. Sometimes I'm not some I'm not some Michelle Obama hater, but. Not a fan either, obviously. Definitely not a fan. But, you know, she's entitled to her opinion, but we're entitled to say that's not a very smart opinion on some of these subjects. Uh, you know, and you can tell, too, there's kind of a practiced tone and everything. And this is where I say I, I would ignore it for the most part, except for the fact that, you know, Michelle Obama is, I, I would not be, why have her say it now? Why have her come out now when it's all this all this focus on Kamala Harris and maybe Bernie Sanders? I'm still here, baby. I'm in the game. Put me in, coach. Put the helmet on. Uh, you know, well, there's all this focus with them 
Uh, who I mean, who else is even really in the company? There's a bunch of other, I'm not trying to be mean, but like B and even C team candidates on the Democrat side that think they're going to run in 2020. I mean, I, I'm hearing all kinds of crazy stuff. Biden says he's going to come back. Maybe. Uh, Michelle Obama has the name recognition, the power, and the party behind her the day she decides she wants to run. So she's a turnkey presidential candidate. And what better way to unerase the erased Barack Obama uh, policy legacy that remember what's going on with Trump right now than to have Michelle Obama come into office and reenact a lot of it and push it even further. So I'm telling you, you didn't hear it here first, but you're hearing it from me. Keep an eye on Michelle Obama going forward. I think she's running. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. You know, sometimes there's a weird story out there that I just have to talk to you about because I don't want to be alone in knowing about it. So there is this this sexual consent expert, which I didn't know. I'm being honest. I didn't even know it was a thing. Uh, But she's down in Australia. And and now a lot lot of you are probably like, how to speak Australian. And every Australian I know hates Foster's, hates the accents from the commercial, doesn't like Outback Steakhouse. They think that it's all just anyway. um, But there's this woman who named Dean Carson or Deanne Carson. Yeah, Deanne, I guess, who works for an organization which teaches children about consent. And she says, we work with parents. Well, you know what, actually? I, let me just just play the audio for you. By the way, this woman, um, ha, which I thought was interesting, has completely bleached purple hair. Uh, so if you see her on the Internet, you'll, you'll know who she is. Uh, play the audio, please. How young are some of the children you talk to? Uh, we work from children from three years old. We work with parents from birth. From birth? Yeah. Yeah, just about how to set up a culture of consent in their home. So I'm going to change your nappy now. Is that okay? Of course, the baby's not going to respond. Yes, mum, that's awesome. I'd love to have my nappy changed. But if you leave a space and wait for body language and wait to make eye contact, then you're letting that child know that their response matters. What? What the heck is she talking about? Mummy wants to change your nappy now. Oh, it's time to change your nappy. Do you want me to change? No, you don't want me. You can't speak yet, but perhaps you you will give me Morse code through your eyelids as to whether I should change your nappy. Meanwhile, the baby's there like burping and farting up a storm. Like, what? what is this? This is... I understand that people will say anything pretty much if it gets them on TV. And she certainly has a unique take on things, but establishing a culture of consent when it comes to changing your baby's diaper. I, I, I just, I mean, it's, it's crazy, but I even disagree with what she thinks she's trying to do, which is think how weird that is for the parent. Like you're going to create the, this notion that like the, the baby, why is it just changing the diaper by the way? The, the, a baby, and I don't have one yet, so a lot of you have a lot more expertise than I do, but I actually visited uh, Miss Molly's sister's baby recently. It was very, very cute. But, you know, a, a baby is not going to be 
you know, driving you around like a car with a steering wheel, right? Like you pick it up, you move it around, you feed it. It is completely reliant upon the adults to uh, nurture it and, and, yes, to keep it alive. And so there, there actually is no consent when it comes to babies because babies are not actually capable of consent. And telling parents to ask for consent, it's just one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. And keep in mind, this isn't someone who just like went on TV and said something dumb. Like, oh, like, you're stopping in Times Square asking strangers, let me say something crazy. No, it's not that. She is allegedly a consent expert who's teaching also, by the way, consent to children. I understand that it is so later on in life, they understand what consent means. But, you know, most sentient adults or, or even young adults understand, like, it, it takes two to tango and the other person has to want to dance, right? Like there, and you, you have to make sure you know that. And when you know, you know, and then you go, but instead you've got this just completely bizarre. Lady. If you haven't seen it, you got to watch, just play John, play the beginning again, just so I didn't miss here. So just give me the first like 20 seconds of this. Again. How young is some of the children you talk to? Uh, we work from children from three years old. We work with parents from birth, from birth. Yeah. Yeah, just about how to set up a culture of consent in their home. So I'm going to change your nappy now. Is that okay? I'm going to of change your they- nappy now. Is it okay? Stupid question. What? What? <laughs> Thank you, John. Yes. Stupid question. Well played. What idiocy. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, uh, she's a consent expert. And she thinks that this is, it's just such a strange. What's next? Like. You know, I just want to create a culture of surveillance and and lawfulness in the home. So we'll set up little surveillance cameras in every room so the parents know they're being watched. Right? Craziness. This this went kind of viral today because everyone's like, now this is bonkers. Uh, I'm pretty sure, you know what? The little baby should be thankful that someone's changing the stinky diaper. How about that? How about teaching the baby to say, thank you, mommy, when you change the little diaper? craziness it really is you know it's uh i i had to play it for you i had to i I couldn't deprive you of of that bit of lunacy i mean it's one of the more crazy things i've heard all week uh we've got roll call coming up here in a second i don't know if we can top that oh it's roll call with your nappy would you like me to take your nappy and dab it around your mouth after your meal for roll call ozzy are you going on stage later We'll be right back. The show ain't over yet, folks. Keeping it real. Time for roll call. <laughs> I, just, I just love that we got uh, we got our buddy Andy, the, our voiceover guy, to, to say things like "keeping it real." <laughs> I don't I don't think he's gotten requests to say things like that before. I think I might I think I might be a first. Uh, so, uh, there we have it. I'm getting used to the swamp down here. I gotta say, it's a little steamy, a little misty out, you know, but. Uh, if you embrace it, you get kind of used to it. Just got to keep lots of 
lots of changes of clothes on hands. You know, undershirts don't last long in the swamp. Uh, fun to talk to uh, Neil Cavuto before today. I don't know if you caught that. We'll put it up on Facebook, but I got a chance to chat with our buddy Cavuto. And I did not wear a tie. You know what? I kind of like no tie buck. I wonder what you all think about that. You know what I mean? I'm down. I, I, no tie, no shave. I don't have time for it today. I feel like it's a little more authentic sometimes to just roll into the studio the way I am instead of like, oh, look at me today. I've combed my hair and I am all spick and span. I'm so ready to go. So, yeah, a little bit of a different vibe. All right, your thoughts, not mine. Let's do this. Roll call. Da, 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 da. I actually kind of like that jazzy beat. It's got uh, just enough just enough funk to keep it spicy. Uh, here we go. Michael writes about... Um, Mr. Vegan Muffin should have told them to turn the stuff off. What the hell is a vegan muffin anyway? I'm guessing he'd be a brand muffin kind of guy. Uh, you know, brand muffins are gross. So I, I, I agree with Michael here on this one. Brand muffins are, are pretty gross. And I used to be able to eat them, so I know. I know what they're like. Um, but vegan muffin just means... Wow, actually, that's good. It means they use a... I'm trying to remember. There's something that like a some kind of a baking powder thing they use instead of um instead of well eggs i know they can't use eggs and they can't use dairy is it yeah it's like it's a, is it a yeast that they put in i don't know i don't know what it is but I, one day i'll figure out what's in vegan vegan is the one thing i just can't do vegetarian i can't do either but i could fake it for a little while but you, if you cut dairy out of my diet I'm just going to be hangry 24-7. Uh, Bob, next up here. Trump was right. I'm getting tired of winning. Well, Bob, I know the sentiment, my friend. I know what you're talking about here. And uh, I think it's I think it's quite a, it's been quite a week for the Trumpster. I think tomorrow I'll do kind of a week in review. This is not not Trump's best week ever. I think election week has to be his best week ever. But this has been one of the this has been one of the strongest of the administration so far in so many ways. And, yeah, there's a lot of liberal tears because of it. A lot of Obamaites are getting big, sad faces right now. It's very sad because Trump is just like swooping in here. Conan style. What's that line about? Uh, you know, hear the hear the lamentations, you know, when he takes it. You know what I'm talking about. From Conan the Barbarian. Destroy your enemies. Hear the lamentations of... Something like that. Crush your enemies. See them driven before you. And they hear the lamentation of the women. All right, we've got Greg up next. He writes... Um, hold on a second. Hey, Buck, not sure you knew this, but they're making a sequel to one of your favorite movies, Braveheart, Shields High. What? What? Is this for real? Producer Mike, I need you to do a deep dive into this. Is there really going to be a Braveheart sequel? Because that would just be a great a great thing for freedom and for the world. Um, Angus McFadden, or Mc, yeah, McFadden, who played Robert the Bruce, who is actually who Braveheart, uh, had the nickname Braveheart in, in history. So it kind of makes sense that they'd go with the sequel here. Although, yeah, kind of makes some sense. So I think that could be very interesting. Um the Battle of Bannockburn. Hey, Bannockburn. It's a fun thing to say with a Scottish accent. Betty's next. She writes, enjoy you at night. Suggest regarding podcasts that you might like to read The Silk Road, Did like I did last summer. 
good read. Okay. Thanks, Betty. I'll, uh, I'll add that to the, the list. I got a pile and I got a list of books. Paul writes, I'm looking forward to your assessment about the Iranian attack on Israel. Shields high. Um, well, Paul, good call on that. I will uh, certainly be talking to you about the Iranian attack on Israel more, and uh, we will continue to cover it. Uh, we have next up here, Chris, who writes, Buck, do you have any discount code for a Mother's Day gift, say, flowers uh, from a sponsor of your show? Chris? You ask a very good question, my friend. I don't think we have a specific Mother's Day gift uh, promo yet on the show. And we really should get a flower sponsor. So I will, uh, I'll make some calls. I'll see what I can do on that one. So thank you so much. Eric, next up, got me with the Hillary thing again. Was already laughing at that. And then you mentioned maybe doing the whole list in her voice. LOL. Thanks for the great laugh. Also, my favorite buck slap sound effect is the hee one. Shields high. <laughs> Shields high. Thanks, Eric. I'm glad, I'm glad you like that one. Uh, so there you have it. Let's see what else next. Um, we have Christopher writes, This is just an interesting thought from a total civilian. The Korean War is already officially over. This is an anecdotal historical realization in advance. The reason for Pompeo's visit must have been to sign and complete the paperwork. In the interest of national security, Trump couldn't possibly be expected to meet the leader of a foreign country on foreign soil that we are still technically at war with. Just interesting. If they didn't work that paperwork deal out behind closed doors, they should. Um, I, I, I kind of I got nothing on that one, Christopher. Uh, don't, sorry, I don't know. Interesting. Thanks for... Thanks for sending. John up next here. And he writes, Hey, Buck, Shields High. You totally nailed it on The Last Jedi, and I'm a bigger Star Wars fan than most. Wow. Guys, John sent a photo of himself in a straight-up movie-quality Obi-Wan Kenobi costume. So he is indeed a pretty big Star Wars fan. He goes on, though, in this note. But the worst part was that a ship with no gas in outer space would never fall backwards because, you know, physics and inertia. Keep up the great work. Looking forward to your future projects. John, thank you so much. And thank you for uh, putting out a little bit of the uh, astrophysics knowledge there. I like it. Dale writes, hey, Buck. She- Whoa, here we go. Hey, Buck, Shields High. I caught some of your discussion last week regarding a request for tips of things to do in D.C., you reply that you weren't that up on DC anymore, but you're certainly an expert on NYC, which obviously you would be as you are a man of the city. As luck would have it, I won a hotel reservation for one night in Woodbridge, New Jersey through my company and obviously thought this would be a great time for my wife and I to visit Manhattan, one of the few places in the United States that we have never been. So we're flying into Newark, taking the train, then we're going to take the train to Penn Station, etc., etc., I'd be really interested in hearing your thoughts, a la Buck Sexton's guide to a first-time weekend in NYC. My major concern is not biting off too much of the Big Apple, considering we're flying back Sunday. P.S. Uh, I had a friend who was on a business trip in the D.C. area, returned the car to BWI, and realized they were supposed to be leaving from Dulles. They made their flight, though. Lord knows how. Well, thank you, Dale. Okay, so Buck's... Uh, I think the New York Times does a 36 hours or 48 hours in whatever city. So let's say it's 36 hours. So you got 
Friday night to Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon. Um, I would say for a lot of you, obviously, pick a show on Broadway that you want to see because it's just an experience and there's a lot of them. Uh, pick one that's, that speaks to you. Uh, I would say you should definitely plan and, and plan the route beforehand. Plan a walk through Central Park. I personally advocate uh, starting at the south end and then going north. The south end is the more touristy end. Go for a nice walk through Central Park. Make your way past the boat pond all the way up to, or the rowboat pond. And then you can make your way to the sailboat pond, which has these little mini sailboats in it. You can then cut out east and head over to J.G. Mellon's, one of my favorite haunts for a fantastic but small, so you won't, we might want two, hamburger. They also have excellent chili. And then I would say go for a walk around the Upper East Side. Stop by the Metropolitan Museum of Art. That's all maybe something you could do, you know, Saturday during the day and in the afternoon. Friday night, you got the Broadway show. I would recommend going down for dinner to the West Village, maybe Saturday night. I think that's the most charming part of the city. Also, people call it Greenwich Village. And that's also just where you'll see a lot of interesting stuff going on. It's the most... uh, it's not really bohemian anymore. It's very expensive, but it's certainly a, a culturally rich and dynamic part of the city. And in terms of the big touristy stuff, like uh, Statue of Liberty, um, Empire State Building, that's all. I leave that to your own discretion uh, how you fit that in. But that's that's a oh oh, and go up on the High Line and go walk in Chelsea Market, taste some of the food, and go for a, a walk along the High Line Park. Uh, those are my. That's my 36 hours in New York City. That's what I would do. And with that, team, I'm going to close up the, uh, the Freedom Hut for the evening. Right in the middle of the swamp here. I feel like there's gators in the bayou all over the place here. But uh, don't worry. I know I'll be okay because I've got the team by my side. So uh, please do send me your thoughts. Facebook.com slash and Tell somebody about the show. Until next time, my friend, no matter what comes your way, you have your orders. You have your destiny. Shields high. I've got early days and long days lately, but the good news is that I've got all the necessary caffeination I need from my friends, from my uh, brothers in arms for freedom over at Black Rifle Coffee. Uh, I'm a subscriber. I get the K-Cups delivered to me. So it's great because I bring some into the office or I've got Black Rifle's K-Cups at home. Couldn't be any easier. Throw in a little bit of cream because I'm not a socialist with some kind of soy milk. And I enjoy my Black Rifle coffee at the office or when I'm just chilling out at home and having a great time. So check it out for yourself. Go to blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. That's blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. Coupon code BUCK15. Type that in because that'll get you 15% off. It also tells the Black Rifle folks that you're Team Buck and that you're supporting them and this show. BlackRifleCoffee.com slash BUCK. Coupon code BUCK15 for 15% off.